Well, if you tuned in last week, you'll remember that we started a new series uh, here at Ascension uh, in the Old Testament uh, book of the Bible uh, that I asked you to turn to, the book of Esther, a book that takes place uh, about five centuries uh, before the birth of Christ. And we just began uh, this uh, study And uh, in these opening chapters, we're still setting the scene, in a way, for all that is uh, to follow, all that will unfold. We are introducing characters, we're beginning to build tension, and yet even in these introductory chapters, uh, I believe, uh, because... Uh, of what God's word says about itself, that all scripture is profitable, that even these beginning chapters that are opening uh, the story and setting the scene are instructive for us in our lives. And so last week we were reminded uh, of two things, that the world's greatness is ultimately an illusion and that the hidden king truly reigns. And those truths came from uh, the introduction to the book, a very vivid introduction to the book, and an introduction to a king, an earthly king, King Ahasuerus, that seemingly had all power, glory, and control. And yet as we were reminded, even though his name was never mentioned, there was a hidden king. There is a hidden king who truly Reigns. Well, today we meet two more crucial characters uh, in this story of Esther. Uh, and so I'm going to read a pretty good chunk of uh, the book, the entirety of chapter two, and invite you to follow along either in your Bibles uh, or, in, um, or on the screen that you see before you as it will follow, uh, follow the scripture as well. So this is Esther chapter two, starting at verse one and reading through the end of the chapter. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what, she had, what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. 
So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, so Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take in with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, To go in with the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had the charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as, she, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my first question for you this morning as we jump back into this story, I wonder if anyone has ever heard of another story. It's a story called Cinderella. 
And you say, of course, of course I've heard of Cinderella. For most of us, it has been the Disney Corporation uh, that we have to thank for putting this ancient uh, folk tale before us. This heartwarming rags to riches uh, story where there are literally hundreds of variations in dozens of different cultures, right? We love the story of Cinderella, this down and out girl from nowhere captures the heart of the prince who has it all and they live happily ever after. And it all hinges on the night of the ball. Well, so we come to Esther chapter two and we get in a little more to the story of what's happening. This is a story that predates Cinderella by generations and generations. And we might say that the story of Esther and specifically chapter two is Cinderella's edgy older sister. At least the story, right? This story is not sweet and and savory. This story is seedy and sensual. This story is rated R, or we might at least say it's at least rated PG-13, right? Disney's Cinderella impresses her prince with beauty, with a gentle spirit, and with a dance, and much more is expected out of young Esther. You see, the story of Esther isn't built on romance. It's built on an abuse of power. And we ask ourselves, well, how exactly did we get here? Well, the passage we are looking at today begins with three words, after these things. But after these things doesn't mean at the end of the week. We are likely talking years later. Years have elapsed between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. Vashti said no in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. Esther, though some time transpires here even in chapter two, Esther is made queen in the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign. And so as many scholars believe that during the time uh, of the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, that the king went uh, to war with the Greeks. And of course, history tells us that that is indeed the case, that Ahasuerus tried to expand his territory, and so he went to war with the Greeks. He ended up losing to the Greeks. And so it would make sense that as we come to the beginning of chapter two, years later, that Ahasuerus, a defeated king, is back in his palace after a failed military campaign, licking his wounds and remembering his queen. You see, that word remember has bound up in it the idea of regret. Ahasuerus regrets his impulsive and ill-advised decision that led to her departure. And everyone knows that a sad king makes for a sad kingdom. And so his buddies, the men around him, his advisors, they come up with a plan to cheer up their king and to make up for the loss of his 
queen. And again, this is just a, a continuation of others deciding things for him. What's their plan? Well, their plan is this. Miss Persia, 479 B.C., or around that year. Miss Persia, 479 B.C. It's a beauty pageant, kind, kind of. Your entry is essentially by lottery. There are some qualifications. Are you pretty? Check. Have you not had sex with a man yet? Check. Do the king's officials show up at your door? Check. You're entered, whether you like it or not. Oh, and we're going to skip the talent part of the conversation. We're going to skip the evening gowns, the interviews, even the swimsuits. Instead, after a year of soaking in spice, dealing with your dry, cracked feet and the blemishes on your body, toning up those curves, there's just one category that you need to be concerned about. One night with the king. Sex with a stranger. Now let me assure you, this, this idea, this was not normal, even by Persian, pagan Persian standards. Ashuerus' dad, in contrast, he chose his wives, yes, wives, he chose his wives from noble families in the kingdom. So this is not normal. Not only is this not normal, this is not romantic. This is offensive. This is brutal. This is the objectifying and victimization of young girls at the hands of powerful, abusive men. And as a father of girls myself, this this kind of thing boils my blood. It should boil your blood. But what Ahasuerus is displaying here is his absolute power and control to do whatever he wants. And it's a power and a control that it's not just for young girls, it's actually for for young men as, as well because he takes young men at his pleasure and brings them into the palace to make them eunuchs, castrated for the kingdom, to work in his palace among his women. This is a brutal scene. Swept up into this, this whole mess, this whole brutality are two Jews, Mordecai and his cousin. Three times in verse six, if you have your Bibles there, you can see it with me. Three times the phrase carried away is used. Their ancestors were brought to this land against their will. They were carried away. And now here they are, stuck in the midst of all of this. And these are two who have chosen, for whatever reason, to stay. They have not returned to the promised land. And now this young Jewish girl, as a result of likely Mordecai's decision to stay put, now she herself will be carried away, swept into this scheme. 
So, so what do we do with this, this passage? Well, there's two realities, two realities that I'd like us to be challenged and encouraged by. And the first one is this. The simple reality that life in two kingdoms is a struggle. Life in two kingdoms is a struggle. You see, there's one character in this entire book. There's one character and only one who is mentioned to have two names. She's a young woman. She's caught between two worlds. She's caught between two kingdoms. She's caught between two identities. Her name is Hadassah. The name given to her by her birth parents who are now gone, a name that links her with a heritage, with a people, with a covenant, with a God, with Yahweh. But her name is also Esther, a Persian name that grounds her in a time and in a place that fits her into a culture and its values and its ways that are very different than those of her upbringing. You see, she, her cousin, and others like her are are bound to live in this tension. This tension of two kingdoms, of two worlds, of two loyalties. And it's a struggle. It's a struggle to do so, and I I want us to just see that and and just live in that for a few moments. See, our story shifts from the king, chapter one, to now the plight of this young, unknown Jewish girl. She's met all the criteria for this beauty pageant, And now the king's officials have come knocking. The drama is building. And our text is very clear. Hadassah, Esther, she is gorgeous. Rabbinic tradition actually tells us, and of course rabbinic tradition, Jewish tradition is is a biased perspective, but they classified her as one of the four most beautiful women in the world ever alongside Sarah and Rahab and Abigail. Swept up into this decree, Hadassah is now just one of the girls. She's one of dozens of young girls, maybe hundreds of young girls. Swept up by the king's officials. Now for some girls, for some girls this actually would be a way out. For some Persian girl who had grown up in the empire, idolizing the king, this was a way out of a life of struggle, maybe a life of of poverty and an opportunity to win the lottery. After one night with the king, maybe he'll choose me, and if he doesn't choose me, Well, at least I will be able to stay in the palace. I will stay as one of his concubines. I will live a life of luxury and pleasure. I'll be at a meaningless life, waiting 
to see if the king ever calls again. Wasn't a life of independence, wasn't a life of rich meaning, but it was a life free from hunger and free from an uncertain future. For, for some young girls, this was a way out. But for other girls, this would have been an absolute nightmare. Against their will, ripped from their homes and separated from their families. You see, as we come to this, as we come to this text, we, we wonder how Hadassah felt about this. But we're not told. I mean, she's ethnically Jewish. We know that, but we don't even know if she's walking with Yahweh at this point. There's no mention of religion at all in her practice or in her cousin Mordecai's practice. We knew, know that by the end of the story, by the end of the book of Esther, she's different. She's a more mature woman than she is now. But we don't know what she's thinking now. And we also wonder how Mordecai felt I mean, this is clear. Mordecai didn't fight this. He didn't struggle against this. He didn't smuggle her to Jerusalem and flee once he heard this edict going out. Maybe he didn't have time. Maybe he thought that resistance against the most powerful man in the world was futile. Or maybe he saw this as a long shot opportunity for Esther's life to improve and for his life to improve. We don't know the details. And man, do we wish, do I wish I had more. It's been one of my struggles this week uh, studying this passage. If we just had a little bit of dialogue from Esther. But we don't. We have to live in this ambiguity. Now some, particularly in the Jewish tradition, they've wanted to to protect Esther and to exonerate Mordecai from any wrongdoing. And so they do this through a variety of means. They, They had no choice. She actually didn't sleep with the king. There was something else going on that night. While others have have wanted to point out that the plain reading of the book of Esther doesn't really give any wiggle room that they were exonerated from their actions. It seems clear that in some way they compromised their faith, whatever measure of faith they had. And again, we, we don't know. And so as I look at this passage, I don't want to unnecessarily throw Mordecai and Esther and the difficult spot they're in, I don't want to throw them under the bus, but I also don't want to exonerate them. I just want to recognize the struggle, the struggle of life in two kingdoms. See, this is a difficult spot to be in. And there's a lot that we don't know about other circumstances, about motives, about feeling. As we think about this for our own lives, at times our choices are black and white, plain as day. Other times they're difficult, they're nuanced, they're they're in that gray area. 
At times we, we have strength to make a stand, encourage for the Lord, and at other times we, we buckle and we remain quiet. You see, life in two kingdoms is a struggle. And we see it here in the life of Mordecai and Esther. Verse 10 is, is really the first problem in regards to this. Apparently there was some anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish attitude in the empire already, a threat, at least a discrimination against Jews. And so Mordecai tells his cousin to stay quiet about her roots, to stay quiet about her heritage, to stay quiet about her God, to stay quiet about her faith, depending upon, I don't know what kind of faith she has at this point. Just fly beneath the radar. Make yourself indistinguishable from those around you. Dietary laws, ignore them. Sacrifices, you don't need them right now. Sabbath day observance, it's just another day as far as you're concerned as you are part of the king's women. But again, maybe in her exiled immaturity and in her young age, she didn't do these things. We do notice how different the stand of Daniel was. Right? You remember the story of Daniel? Surely Esther and Mordecai had heard the story of Daniel and their defiant stand against the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. And what did God do when they defiantly stood against unrighteousness in the kingdom? God honored their faithfulness. God saved them despite the sentence of death being handed down. But Esther, she stays quiet. And then there was the central issue of this, this night. Exodus twenty fourteen prohibits sex outside of marriage. Deuteronomy 7, 3 prohibits intermarrying a pagan king. Two things that Esther obviously did. Again, did she have no choice? Did she willingly enter into this breaking God's law in order to get to the end? The means justify the end? We, we don't know. Was this teenage girl supposed to take a, a stand like Vashti took? Or was she supposed to just listen to her cousin and do whatever it takes to stay alive? I don't have all the answers, but life in two kingdoms is a struggle. And as we think about this tension, as we think about this ambiguity, this moral ambiguity, her struggle is our struggle at times. Jesus prayed for his followers in John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And then in 1 John 2, a verse we're gonna read next week in our scripture reading, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
And so we have the New Testament which calls us as believers, as followers of Jesus, to be salt and light and a city on a hill and yet too easily and how often we stay quiet and we're content to blend in. No need to rock the boat. No need to upset the apple cart. You see, it's in those situations that we need courage. Courage to make a stand despite what the consequences might be. To defend clearly God's honor and our position and our identity as his. Then at other times, we unnecessarily beat people over the head. We're, we're quick to condemn them with so-called righteous authority. And in these times, then, we need to do the opposite. We need to be quiet. We need to listen. It's hard to know at times how to navigate this life as citizens of two kingdoms. And too often, maybe more often than not, we, we simply screw it up. Right? Sometimes we make bad choices for good reasons, trying to be faithful. Other times we make bad choices for bad reasons, actively rebellion, rebelling, ruled by the flesh rather than by the spirit. And what, what I want us to see, what I want us to recognize as we live in this tension is simply that we need wisdom. We need discernment. We need humility. And there's also something else that we need that I think our text points us to and the story of Esther points us to. Not just that life in two kingdoms is a struggle. But that God uses imperfect instruments. God uses imperfect instruments. Praise God for this. Through compromise, through moral ambiguity, even outright rebellion, through weakness, through pagan political schemes, God accomplishes his purpose in and through us. And as we don't know the intentions and the motives and the heart of Esther and Mordecai, we don't know precisely what actions they should have taken and which actions God called them to take in in righteousness. It's, It's a difficult struggle. It's a difficult situation. We do know this. That despite it all, God uses them. Going back to that concept of of favor, ultimately, favor is outside of one's control, isn't it? I remember when we bought our first home, my wife and I, in the crazy competitive market of of Southern California in the early 2000s, 
It was a market where every house was, was, was being sold within a week and every house was receiving multiple bids and every bid, at least those bids that wanted to be accepted or considered, were over asking price. I remember when our bid, which was not over asking price, I remember our realtor telling to us that the sellers who, through a, a, through a weird set of circumstances, we actually had met the sellers of this house. I remember their realtor telling us that the sellers accepted our offer because they felt like we had good karma. Good karma. And I just laughed. I internally laughed. That's not karma. That's the Lord's favor. We see it in Esther's life in verse 9 with Haggai. We see it again in verse 15 with everybody that she's in contact with. And then we see it finally and most importantly in verse 17 with the king. I mean, as beautiful as Esther might have been, we all know that ultimately beauty is in the eye of the beholder. She couldn't solely by her own wisdom and cunning, by the cunning of those who prepared her, they couldn't create her create her into someone that automatically the king would find favor in. Now that was outside of her control and yet the favor that she receives with King Ahasuerus ends the competition and Esther now rises to the most powerful and privileged position for a woman to hold in the world. She and her cousin despite their imperfections, are now instruments in the hands of a mighty God. And you know as well as I do, those of you who know and love the scriptures, that the Bible is full of such stories of imperfect instruments. Abraham and his lying. Moses and his fear of speaking and his lack of courage, David and his adultery and murder, Rahab the prostitute, Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor. Thanks be to God that he uses us despite us. That's good news for us this morning. As we struggle to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh, as we struggle to be citizens of heaven and citizens of earth, and to know how to live in that tension. God uses imperfect instruments. Well, that sets the scene for all that's going to come. The characters are now in place. And the last bit of our passage hints at what is to come. See, Mordecai, her cousin, is is in the right place at the right time. He's sitting at the king's gate. We don't know if he got that position. It's a position in the king's court. We don't know if he got that position as a result of, of Esther's rise or if he had that before Esther's rise, but he he hears about a political plot, an assassination attempt. History tells us that actually Ahasuerus will get killed by an assassination attempt in years to come. Kings had lots of enemies. 
But Mordecai hears about this plot. He foils this plot by telling Esther and, and then it just goes away. No fanfare, normally something like this happens. The king wants to recognize immediately that the person who saved his life, who foiled the plot, but all our text says in verse 23 is, it was recorded. The writer is saying, tuck that away. Tuck that away because God won't waste that. It's all part of his timing. God wastes nothing. He uses imperfect instruments in his perfect time. Brothers and sisters, that's good news for us. That's good news for all of us. No matter what your past is like, You don't need to live in the guilt of your past. You don't need to beat yourself up over your failures. You don't need to wallow in your own inadequacies or weaknesses. But in the struggle, in this ongoing struggle of living in two kingdoms, we need to simply pray for discernment and rejoice that God's purposes will never be thwarted, even when it seems that they might be. Of course, the greatest example we have of this is our Lord Jesus. Despite living a life of no compromise, Jesus perfectly walking in this life in obedience to the Father and his will, despite a life of no compromise, he's innocently killed on a Roman cross. And even this passage, even Esther here points us to him. Because Esther will be, spoiler alert, a savior for her people but she's not the savior they ultimately need. She's an imperfect savior, but there is one who is coming, who is perfect. And he invites you to himself, and he's pleased to use you despite your imperfections and guide you as you live in this tension of two kingdoms. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account and this history and the reminder this morning of these great truths that though our existence in this life as citizens of heaven and citizens of earth is is one filled with tension and struggle, as we walk in faith, as we walk in imperfection, we can be confident that you are at work, that your purposes will not be thwarted, but that you are pleased to use imperfect instruments in your perfect hands. Oh, Father, how thankful we are for that reality, for that good news. Plant it deep in us this day, this week, that we might live 
accordingly, that we might live out of these gospel realities and that we might have the wisdom and discernment to show courage when courage is needed, to be quiet when quietness is needed. All for the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.